0: Let's open up to the book of Galatians. This afternoon we're going to go through chapter 5 and once again hit some of the highlights from the chapter. Let's open in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, what a great blessing it is to be able to gather today, to have a reason to come together to be able to worship the God that we serve Lord, as you're redeemed, we are grateful that you opened our eyes, we're grateful that you helped us to see our need for Christ, and Lord, we're grateful for providing us with a place to meet together, together with our brothers and sisters in Christ here. Lord, I pray for those, our brothers and sisters around the world, that don't have these great blessings we have, that are facing the true persecution, that are being beaten and tortured, Jobs taken away, yet they will not deny the name of Christ. Lord, we pray for them, that you would strengthen them. And Lord, I pray that they would be an encouragement to us. We'd be committed to their prayer, that you would be with them and guide them, Lord. That the gospel would continue to spread in those countries where it's trying to be suppressed. And that it would all be an encouragement to us, Lord, to pursue you even more. Lord, as we open up your word this afternoon, we pray that that spirit would be our guide and our teacher, that you would use the feeble words of man, backed by the spirit to change lives. Lord, I pray for the redeemed and pray for us this afternoon, that as we open up this word, that you would speak to us through your spirit, you would help to teach us, Lord, that we would be equipped through your word for service. Lord, I pray this afternoon for those that do not yet know Christ, that may be sitting here unsure of the things we're speaking of and not understanding. I pray, Lord, in the same way that you changed us, in the same way that you opened our eyes and helped us to see, the same way you gave us a new heart, the same way you traded the righteousness of Christ for our sin, I pray that it might be today might be the day that, that would happen to someone here, Lord. We pray that you would... Bring someone to the knowledge of their sin, to the knowledge they need Christ to make that payment for their sin. So we open up your word this afternoon, Lord. I pray that you'd be glorified by what we do. Pray that you would grow us each time we meet, Lord, and to know better how to worship you. Just pray that you'd be with us this afternoon, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 5. With the close of chapter 4, Paul stated, Brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And in the beginning of chapter 5, he starts transitioning by stating that Christ is the source of their freedom. For them to stand fast in their freedom and to not go back into slavery. Paul is instructing and encouraging those who have strayed to get back on course, to continue on with what they had been taught before being led into error. Paul has covered justification pretty extensively so far in this letter, and now he's going to give some instruction on sanctification. Martin Luther once stated, "...there is no justification without sanctification, no forgiveness without renewal of life, no real faith from which the fruits of new obedience do not grow. There is no justification without sanctification, no forgiveness without renewal of life, no real faith from which the fruits of new obedience do not grow." I don't know the context of that quote, why he stated that, or exactly what scripture he was referring to, but it certainly seems pertinent to this passage today. In the message last week, we established our similarity to the Galatians situation, and now we can glean some direction on our own struggles as we go through sanctification. The way they struggle, we struggle in the same way. In the message last week, we established our similarity to the Galatians, and we learned how to keep from error by applying those six words, but what does the scripture say? And this week we will learn how to grow in sanctification while we are avoiding error. Paul doesn't abandon his illustration of slave and free, but he continues on speaking of those in the flesh versus those in the spirit, of the error of thinking justifications by works versus the truth that it is only through Christ. Paul ends this part of the letter by giving some very descriptive illustrations on how being led and walking in the spirit looks versus living in the flesh. We can get as deep as we want going through Galatians from basic teaching on justification and what it is to an in-depth exploration of theological ideas. And at times the ideas contained in Galatians can get a bit overwhelming. In the third chapter of 2 Peter, Peter refers to Paul as his beloved brother who wrote according to the wisdom given to him. And he said this about Paul's letters. He stated, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And I can certainly agree with Peter about that. But what he says next is a short description of what was occurring in Galatia that time. Peter stated, There are some things in them in the letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. To take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, Good advice for all of us to remember. So this afternoon, I would like to look at chapter 5 in two parts, the first part being verses 1 to 15, where we see Paul's description of how Christ has set us free, and then verses 16 to 25, where we will quickly examine what walking in the Spirit entails. In this first section, Paul describes what freedom is, as well as standing firm in Christ. So let me read those first 15 verses. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And the Spirit places word on our hearts and give us minds to understand and apply his holy word. Paul says Christ set us free stand firm and do not become slaves again three things that Paul tells them as he begins this part of his letter for freedom Christ has set us free. for freedom Christ has set us free what freedom is Paul referring to here what has Christ freed us from what Paul is saying here is that through Christ we are free from the attempts at righteousness through keeping of the law we are free from having to rely on the flesh to perfectly uphold the law, and we are free from a works-based righteousness. We sometimes get a little confused about how the law fits in with our redemption, how grace and the law interact together. But remember our previous lesson through earlier chapters in Galatians, the purpose of the law was to make perfectly clear to us that we could not uphold it. The law gave us a picture of God's characteristics, of his requirements for us. And as we looked at that, the law taught us that we had no chance of ever perfectly upholding it. The law, as Paul said, was our schoolmaster. For our freedom from righteousness through the law, we were set free by the grace of God through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For our freedom from righteousness through the law, we were set free by the grace of God through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, meaning to be firmly committed in conviction or belief, but stand firm in, into what? We are to stand firm in that freedom we receive through Christ, that freedom from righteousness through the law. We are firmly committed in our freedom given through Christ. And Paul says, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. To submit is the idea of being loaded down with a, a yoke is a frame of sort used to control animals. We've all seen that picture of the oxen with a yoke around them as they're working the field. The frame of that helped in bearing the load that was on them on that on yoke. When you think about those words, it really gives us a picture of how we are under the slavery to sin, of bearing the load upon ourselves. He says, be firmly committed to the righteousness provided through Christ and do not be loaded down by enslaving ourselves by attempting righteousness through the keeping of the law. Without Christ, we are loaded down with that burden of adherence to the law for righteousness. But when we are in that state, all we have to look forward to is failure. We cannot uphold it. And day by day, the burden grows greater and greater. Because we know that in our flesh we cannot uphold the law, it is impossible, we've proven that to ourselves over and over. Each day we commit to upholding the perfection God requires, and day by day we fail, and day by day the burden is overwhelming to us, and day by day we realize we cannot bear that burden. And as you think about our inability and our need for help, let's look at what Jesus stated in Matthew 11. He said, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he knows our burdens. He said, come all you who are under this burden, all who are heavy laden by it, all who cry out for help to have this weight removed. Jesus will take that yoke upon himself. He is the one that will take on our burden. It is only through him that we find rest for our souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because through him the yoke of slavery is removed by the grace of God through the Son. He took upon himself this heavy burden that we could never remove. And this world offers nothing that can do that. There is nothing that will take away the burden except Jesus Christ. Knowing that and understanding that, getting that picture in our heads, once again, why would we ever want to add adherence to the law for righteousness? Why would we want to go back and add works to the gospel? Why would we want to bring back that yoke of slavery when it was taken away, when it was placed around the neck of our Savior, and he bore it to the cross? Paul is stating to the Galatians, understand what you're doing, Galatians, by adding the law to the gospel. Understand what you are doing when you try and turn to another gospel. And with his introductory statement out of the way in verse 1, he goes on to his main points, and the first one being the effects of trusting in circumcision. Paul goes back to the idea he brought up in chapter 2, The Jews requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. He goes back to one of his examples of how the law was being added for righteousness and therefore distorting the gospel of Christ. He starts off verse 2 with look. He says, look, meaning to behold, to observe, to consider. He's trying to get their attention. He says, look, if you accept circumcision for justification, you now have no need for Christ or the grace offered through him. If you accept works and you've rejected Christ... The situation Paul is addressing is described in Acts 15 where it states, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is completely and utterly opposed to the gospel. Paul says, You who want to add to the law, you that are like those in Acts 15 that state the law is required for salvation, once you make that error in trying to uphold the law for righteousness, Christ no longer benefits you. If you accept circumcision for righteousness and you must keep the entire law, you are bound to all of it. It's not the first time Paul has stated this. In chapter 3, he stated, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. He says, yet again, if you accept trying to keep some of the law for righteousness, then you are morally obligated, you are indebted to keep the entirety of the law. And this cannot be done. It's an impossibility. We cannot keep one single part of the law perfectly, and we certainly cannot keep all of it. If we rely on works of the law, then we are cursed, cursed to face the wrath of God for our own sin. So Paul says, go ahead, you that want to make adherence to the law a requirement for righteousness, go ahead and try that, but you must keep all of it and keep it to perfection. He says, but you've better first consider the cost If you do that, there is a cost you can never pay, a debt you can never fulfill. Paul goes on, he says, he states what justification by the law equates to. Those who want to be justified by the law experience two things. First, he says, you are severed from Christ. To be severed from Christ, you've withdrawn from him. You do not have any fellowship with him. This word that Paul uses in verse 4 that's translated severed is also used in Romans 7 where it's translated released. Let's listen to that verse in Romans to see both sides of this. So Paul states in Romans 7, he says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, for we are now released from the law. This word severed gives the idea of being taken out of the sphere of operation with. Think of this as it applies to law and grace. In Romans Paul uses this word to state that we are released from the law, we are removed from its sphere of influence as it pertains to righteousness. And yet here in Galatians, he states that if you want to be justified by the law, you're removing yourself from the sphere of influence in Christ for righteousness. You're trying to gain righteousness by your own works, removing the ability for Christ to provide your righteousness. And second, he says, you have fallen away from grace. Paul is not saying you can lose your salvation here. That's not what he's saying. Falling away means to go from a favorable condition to one that is worse. It is a sense of losing something. What would be lost? The unmerited favor of God and righteousness through Christ. If you choose the law over Christ, if you add the law to the gospel, then you've fallen away from the grace of God. You no longer have the benefit of Christ's atonement for sin You are not a beneficiary of the imputed righteousness of Christ. You will be the one facing God's wrath and cannot claim what Christ has taken upon himself in our stead. So Paul, once again, he divides up the two sides. Those in verse 4 who are severed from Christ and the rest who eagerly await for righteousness by faith. Those severed from Christ and those who trust in the grace of God. Those who try and add to the gospel and those who know that the gospel is complete. Those trusted in Christ will faithfully wait until we are fully and completely righteous. Those trusting in Christ will allow God to sanctify them and be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord. We do gain freedom from works of the law for righteousness, but freedom through Christ also results in our hope of righteousness. So in verse 6, Paul moves on to the circumcision issue. Paul is stating again when he presented in chapter 3, some of the Jews could not accept the idea that they were not better than the Gentiles do solely To their birth and their lineage. In chapter 3, he stated that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you recall Pastor Brian's message in Luke, John the Baptist understood this idea. Speaking to the crowds that came to be baptized, he stated to them, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Their birth as Jews means nothing. Their circumcision means nothing. Faith in Christ is all that brings redemption, and that comes through God's love for his redeemed. Paul's second point in verses 7 to 15 is to show how detrimental those that are misleading to Galatian believers have been, and Paul uses that illustration of a runner. He also uses the same illustration in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, where it states, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul says, you were running well. Perhaps Paul uses this due to the fact that in the Greek world at this time, runners who participated in their Olympic Games had a high esteem. They were highly esteemed in their society. Even today, though, we know that someone who is competing as a runner has to put a lot of time and effort into it to discipline a body, to endure the pain and hardship of training. So I think Paul's given us the idea that our lives as Christians are the same way. The Christian life is like running a race. It takes discipline. It takes stamina. It takes endurance. And it takes dedication. It is not easy. It takes work. And Paul says the Galatians, they were doing so well, they were off to a good start on their race. They were obeying the truth. So who hindered them? Who blocked the way? Who impeded them? In verse 8, it tells us who it was not. It was not from him who calls you. Verses 7 to 10, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul mentioned before in the 7th verse of chapter 1 in Galatians about the people who troubled the Galatians and distorted the gospel. He's referring to the same people. Paul is using a play on words in these verses 7 to 10 that is harder to see In our English translation, the ESV translate obeying in verse 7, in verse 8, persuasion, and confidence in verse 10. Three different words, but the Greek correlation is a little bit easier to see. The idea behind these three words is the different things that persuade, and that's what Paul is trying to convey here in these verses. Let me explain that to you. In verse 7, it's who persuaded them away from the truth. Verse 8, this persuasion was not from God. Verse 9 describes how the persuasion spreads. In verse 10, Paul was persuaded from the Lord. So all four of those verses revolve around persuasion of some kind. Paul says, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. We see this idea expressed in 1 Corinthians 15 where it states, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. You see, a few people with bad doctrine can corrupt a large group. A few people with erroneous thought can persuade others to believe otherwise. And that's exactly what happened to the Galatians. A few people came in and persuaded them. He says, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. And penalty here refers to the decision of a judge, the result of a judgment, the sentence of punishment. The Judaizers perverting the gospel will receive the penalty for them misleading. Remember in chapter 1, Paul stated that if anyone, Paul, or an angel preach another gospel, they should be accursed, set aside for destruction. It's the same idea here. Those that mislead are going to bear judgment, whoever they are. Paul says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. This verse is a little bit harder to understand if you don't take the context of the book into consideration. Remember, the Judaizers, these people that are misleading, are also claiming that Paul was on their side, that they were preaching what Paul was preaching. Paul's statement here in verse 11 is a result of that. He's saying that if he were preaching circumcision like they were, then they would not be persecuting him like they are. But the fact is that he was not teaching that circumcision was necessary. They weren't teaching the same gospel. So Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I think we can get the image Paul gives of those troubling Galatians without getting too descriptive this minor surgery of circumcision becoming a more in-depth surgery resulting in emasculation. This once again reflects Paul's concern for the well-being of the Galatian believers and his protection over them. In the last three verses in this verse section, verses 13 to 15, Paul moves back to the idea of the redeemed being free from the bondage of sin and he elaborates on the freedom we have in his purpose. We have freedom in Christ, but we need to view it in the correct aspect. We are free from sin, but not free to do whatever we want. Do not let our flesh dictate what we do now that we are free from sin. We should no longer think only about ourselves now that we are not enslaved to sin, but we need to focus on serving others. We can see a contrast here. Paul states we are called to freedom. He emphasizes that we are free, yet he says that through love serve one another. In English, the word serve might not give us a full idea behind the word as translated from serve is the idea of acting as if in the service to another to perform the duties of a slave. So we are free from sin, but we are now in bondage not to one another, but to Christ. Because of our duty to him, we in turn remove focus from ourselves and turn it toward others. So instead of going back to the slavery to the law, serve one another, be in the position of a servant and act accordingly. Paul goes on, he says, if you want to fulfill the law, then do this, love your neighbor as yourself. And why do we do that? It's because, is it because we're enslaved to one another? No, it's because as servants to Christ, as slaves to Christ, we fulfill his commands. Jesus explained this in John 13, 34, where he stated, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We serve and submit to one another because of him. He loved us, so we love one another and put them before ourselves. And in verse 15, Paul closes out this section with a warning. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. If you bite and devour one another, you will destroy, you will consume, you will do away with one another. Paul is warning them that if they continue on in this error. If it's left unaddressed, it will result ultimately in their destruction. So in the last 10 verses, Paul contrasts two groups of people, those that walk in the spirit and those that feed the flesh, those under the law and those no longer under the law, those that inherit the kingdom of God and those that do not inherit the kingdom of God, those that belong to Christ and those that do not belong to Christ. Paul is trying to illustrate to them how they should look while describing how they should not look. So let me read these last 10 verses. With his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul starts off verse 16 with, But I say, Paul gives instruction to walk by the Spirit. He states that if we do so, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The way desire is used here gives the idea of wanting something evil, an evil desire. Paul is stating that we fight the flesh, we keep it from sin, we fight off those evil desires by walking in the Spirit. Why? Because the evil desires of the flesh are opposed to the Spirit. Those desires keep us from doing the things we want to, as Christians, walking in the Spirit. So Paul describes to us some traits, some characteristics, a walk as Paul describes it. He starts off in verse 16 telling us to walk in the Spirit and then finishes in verse 25 telling us to keep in step with that same Spirit. Paul frequently describes our walk, what it should and should not look like. He does this in letters to the Romans, to the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the Thessalonians. John also describes this walk in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So what is this walk that Paul and John mention? The walk describes characteristics of what the redeemed should look like, traits that we should display as a redeemed. In verse 16, Paul states, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify or carry out the desires of the flesh. By walking in these things, we submit to the Spirit. By walking in the Spirit, we suppress the desire of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They are opposed to the Spirit. These two are warring against each other. And every believer knows that war with the flesh that we battle daily. But these desires of the flesh keep us from doing what we want to serve our Lord. In verse 18, Paul goes back to his theme against the law for justification. He describes why he is speaking about the flesh versus the spirit, because those led by the spirit are no longer under the law. So let's look at the contrast. First, what does one who is under the law look like? It's someone who lives in the works of the flesh, trusting in their own works. These things are evident, the works of the flesh, these sinful desires, they're plain to see, in someone, and Paul names 15 different things here. That's not an all-inclusive list. If any are missed, Paul throws in, in, in things like these. So we can categorize those into four areas. The sexual sins, sins against God, sin toward others, and self-indulgence. Paul states, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things were obviously problematic since Paul states that he had warned them before about these so let's consider what Paul says for a moment. Let's say I fall into jealousy or fits of anger. By what Paul states, does that mean I will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, that's not, that's not Paul's point. It's not what he's stating. How do I know that? First, he warned them before, and they continue to do these things. The issue is with habitual sin. And second is the same concept John presents in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, pay particular attention to how John uses the word practice. As I read this verse, it would help us to understand the concept. John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So both John and Paul are speaking of those things, of those who do these things habitually. Those that do such things, those that do do such things habitually will not inherit the kingdom of God. But remember, these traits are what one is recognized by. This is the evidence of who they are. One who does these habitually does not show that they've been saved by by grace through faith. One who habitually displays these attributes shows that they are reveling in the flesh, constantly feeding it and doing those things contrary to God. Paul is not stating that if we fall into one of these, we are not of God. He's stating that those that habitually do these things with no remorse of their sin, who live in their sin, are none of his. If we are defined by sin and that is our habit, how can we be walking in a newness of life? So a continual exhibition of these traits would indicate Not a life change, but a life that is the same, constantly fulfilling the desires of the flesh. We need to understand that as a redeemed, we are not exempt from our flesh desiring these things, but we do have the power through Christ to victoriously turn away from them. One commentator stated, Slavery consists in capitulating to the desires of the flesh, while freedom comes from yielding to the Holy Spirit. Earlier, Paul stated that being under the law equated to being under a curse. When you were led by the Spirit, you were no longer under that curse. Freedom from the law is not a license to sin, it's a freedom from sin. And those under the law are under the dominion of sin and are slaves to it. And now Paul gets to what every Christian should like, the traits we should all be displaying. Throughout the New Testament, we see the image of fruit used to display how Christians should be, what traits that uh, we should have. It is used here to describe traits of those wrought of the Spirit. It is in contrast to those enslaved to the flesh and its desires. The fruit of the Spirit, what image is that trying to give us? It describes attributes we should have, things we should be known by. As the redeemed, as believers, as those walking in the Spirit of God, there are certain things we would be expected to display, things that are indicative of the redeemed. There are traits and characteristics we have as the redeemed, those that one would expect for a new creature in Christ to display. There is no law that instills these traits within us. The law could not establish these in us. These traits are the natural outcroppings of the life of the redeemed, traits we display in the new man we claim to be redeemed, if we claim to walk in the Spirit, if we claim to be upholding God's requirements for us, we must be in step with the Spirit by displaying these. Our lives should reveal that to everyone around us. Paul is continually contrasting both sides. If we live by the Spirit, we should have these traits. On the other hand, those that are not living by the Spirit are boasting and provoking others, envying others. So the question is, which traits do we display? Which side are we on? If Paul were here with us today, would he know we are walking in the Spirit by examining our traits? Would it be evident to him or would he be rebuking us? We need to examine ourselves to examine our motives, examine our own fruit to see if we display these traits. Are we like the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus described in Matthew 23 where he says, "...for they preach but do not practice?" They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So which side are we on? If you're still enslaved to the desires of the flesh, it is time to turn from that. It's time to turn away from self and time to turn to Christ. His work is finished. The price is paid. He sits at the right hand of the Father. His work is completed. Now, redeemed, you may be saying these things are too hard. They're almost impossible to uphold. And I agree, that's why Paul described the lives of the redeemed as a run or a life requiring discipline and hard work. Thinking of the difficulty, something we do not want to gloss over is the source of our fruit, the reason why we can display these difficult traits. Because verse 22 states, the fruit of the Spirit. These traits are what the Spirit bears through us. We have the ability to do it through Christ. And it's through him that we can uphold these. Benjamin Keach, a 17th century Baptist theologian, stated, You must first have union with him before you can bring forth fruit to God. You must act from life and not for life. We do not emulate these traits to gain eternal life. We do them as a result of that eternal life that was given to us. Displaying these traits does not gain us righteousness. Righteousness is the source of these traits. These traits are a result of a new creature in Christ. We do not display these characteristics out of a written law, Once we are his, these things that may have been impossible in us are now possible through him. Remember, those that belong to Christ have crucified their flesh. They have crucified his passions and desires. That is what we're called to do. That is how we will display these traits. The spirit will bear these in us when we control our flesh. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with that spirit. We keep from biblical error by using scripture as our guide and our source of truth. And once we have that foundation and truth secure, we continue in our freedom in Christ by growing in sanctification. As we grow in sanctification, we are to live and to walk in the spirit, displaying those characteristics Paul mentions here. Christ gives us the freedom from the need to fulfill the law for righteousness. And ultimately, those in Christ are freed from the end result of sin, death, and separation from God and receive eternal life with him. The redeemed, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, that ultimate fulfillment when we will be like Christ. Paul has been our example in how to act toward others. We saw him reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, just as he instructs Timothy to do. But what do we leave with this afternoon that will ensure we stand firm in our freedom Christ has given to us? Now is the time for us to ask ourselves what do we do to ensure we walk by and live in the Spirit? Redeemed, how do we ensure we live like Paul stated? Paul goes into that in chapter 6, but I think one aspect of our sanctification is that we heed the example set out here in Galatians. A simple church, is brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to help one another. Paul was our example of that. I think there was a good reason why Christ sent out the disciples in twos and not alone. We are to help one another. There will be days when we do well in displaying the fruit of the Spirit, and there will be days when we need someone else who's doing well, displaying the fruit of the Spirit to encourage us, to exhort us, and perhaps even to admonish us when necessary. We are not alone. Our Father has provided at least two means of helping us. The primary way is by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, that great gift to us our earnest we have from God that will guide and teach us. And second, our Father who has given us the airship through Christ, our Father who has adopted us, he has also provided us, with brothers and sisters in Christ so we can help one another. So just as Paul came alongside and showed his great love for these people in Galatia that had been hindered from obeying the truth, we need to come alongside one another. I don't mean only the elders and deacons, but each one of us who is redeemed, everyone free through Christ needs to get to know one another so we can come alongside each other. We need to have the compassion and patience Christ had, and we need to have the compassion and patience that Paul displayed here as we help one another. We need to put into practice what Paul displayed to us. So as we leave here, as we gather together in fellowship after service, sit with someone you do not know well. Get to know them. Challenge one another in keeping in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited of our knowledge. Let's not boast about where we are. What do we have that we did not receive from God? Everything we have is not due to our merit. It is due to his goodness toward us. So let's help one another. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. One of the great blessings of this body is our concern we show for one another. And we need to cultivate those relationships with one another to ensure we are living as we should. That's how we need to be known. That is the way the world should see us. They need to see our love one for another. Brothers, we were called to freedom. We must live by the Spirit. and We must keep in step with the Spirit. We must display the fruit of the Spirit as we grow in sanctification and wait for that hope of righteousness. We will be victorious because he has provided us with the means to be pleasing to him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we take this brief look at Scripture. Oh, how convicting it is, Lord, and how challenging knowing the way you've called us to be and those things that seem so, so very difficult for us. I pray that we would understand, Lord, we don't do these in our own flesh. It is through Christ that we can accomplish these things. I pray, Lord, in the way we've already done, that we would come alongside one another to get to know one another, to know our brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage when needed, to pray with when needed, to weep with when needed. I pray, Lord, that your people, your church, would be known by our love one for another. I pray, God, for those that are lost and don't know the Savior that we know, that don't understand that love, that you might open their eyes, Lord. Today might be the day that the angels in heaven will rejoice over one sinner that's been saved pray, God, you'd help them to see their sin, help them to see that they cannot keep the law, to see the great need for Christ. Lord, I pray as we look at our world and the degradation, things seem to get worse and worse, it would draw your people closer to you. We'd have a greater commitment to get into your word, to pray, to serve, to witness, to be what you've called us to be. Lord, I pray as we face these calamities in the world, as people would see us, would wonder how we can react and not worry about those things. They would wonder why we can still have joy. They would wonder why we're not scared of death, Lord. Pray as we go through our lives, we go to our workplaces, that people would see that in us. I pray that people that don't even know us would see our love for one another and wonder about that. It would help them to see something. There'd be something within us that they might desire, Lord. We pray, Lord, as we continue to meet together and to worship you, that each time we open your word, we would look forward to a time to have the Spirit speak to us, for you to teach us, for that Spirit to teach us, to instruct us, to equip us, to build us up. Lord, we pray that you would be with those that are ill, Lord, and going through those difficulties. Pray, Lord, in those times when there's no one else to turn to, that we continue to turn to you. When there's no answers in the world, the answer is in Christ. I pray, Lord, for those of us that aren't going through those, we come alongside those that are, to encourage them, to share, to pray for them. Lord, I pray you continue to grow your church and build it, and the place is pleasing to you. Lord, that every day that you give us breath, we'd use that to serve you, to be busy about the Father's business, and also look forward to that time when you will come for your church, to come for your bride. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.